You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are thrilled and honored to get to talk to Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. We typically like to keep our introductions relatively short so we can get right into the conversation, but Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield's career in foreign service is so uniquely impressive and has included State Department appointments across Republican and Democratic presidents from George W. Bush through President Obama and at the highest levels of international relations, a longer introduction is in order. From 2013 to 2017, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, where she led the development and management of U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa with a focus on economic empowerment, investment opportunities, peace and security, and democracy and governance. Prior to the appointment, she has served as Director General of the Foreign Service and Director of Human Resources, leading the team in charge of the State Department's 70,000 personnel. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield now serves as Senior Vice President at the Albright Stonebridge Group in Washington, D.C. and leads the firm's Africa practice. She earned a B.A. from Louisiana State University and an M.A. degree from the University of Wisconsin, where she worked towards a Ph.D. She received an Honorary Doctor of Law degree from the University of Wisconsin in May 2018. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield retired from the State Department in the early months of the Trump presidency, Today, we want to ask Ambassador Thomas Greenfield about her distinguished career and about her ongoing presence in major news stories, including the New York Times this weekend and the Washington Post last month regarding the politicization of the State Department under the Trump administration, as well as the changing face of the State Department in which many people of color and women who had effectively served in high-level diplomatic positions representing the United States across the globe for years were pushed out and in some cases not replaced or replaced by people without experience and credentials typically required of a United States diplomat in the Trump administration. There is so much to talk about. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ambassador. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. It's such an honor and a pleasure to, to talk to you. Do you want to get started today with just a little bit of background for yourself? I, I gave kind of an official bio, but maybe if you wanted to give a little bit more of a personal background of yourself. Well, you know, I, um, I, I, I don't have the traditional background of a diplomat. You know, I grew up in a small rural town, a segregated town in Louisiana and uh, went from there to Louisiana State University. And the reason you have me on this call is I went from Louisiana State University to the University of Wisconsin. But there were a few things that happened in, in my life that kind of led me to where I landed at UW. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I had the amazing opportunity as I look back on it to have met Peace Corps volunteers who were training to go to Africa, to Somalia and Swaziland. And they brought with them teachers from those two countries who lived in my little community and decided that they would engage with the kids in the community. And I was this 
eighth grader taking Saswati classes with Peace Corps volunteers getting ready to go to serve overseas. One of those teachers, and this is, this is an odd kind of connection and it shows you how small the world is. One of those teachers was a woman by the name of Glory Mamba. So remember I'm in eighth grade and some eight years later, I'm in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin and Glory Mamba is in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. And when I see her, I remember her. She doesn't remember me because I was just a little eighth grader. But when I saw her, I went up and introduced myself and we became life, lifelong friends. But also it just whetted my appetite to study uh, Africa and to learn about Africa and eventually joined the foreign service and end up uh, with a career that took me to, uh, to Africa and uh, to the assistant secretary position uh, in the Obama administration. Yeah, that is a beautiful little example of how small the world is and how yeah. it's so easy to meet such a, a wealth of amazing people here at, at Wisconsin. Can you speak at all to your experience in the public service and in the foreign service? You know, I love being in the Foreign Service, and I loved public service, and I loved representing the people of the United States uh, overseas um, in Africa and elsewhere, because as you know, I served in Pakistan, and I served in Geneva, Switzerland, I uh, served in uh, Jamaica. So I was able to experience a lot of different places around the world, and for me, it was not just getting to know people in those countries, but it was people getting to know me and getting to know the United States. As I look back, one of my, I felt one of my greatest accomplishments was that I was known not just as, you know, this distant diplomat, this ambassador, but people knew me by name. And my first year as ambassador to Liberia, the Liberians had an annual program where they would name uh, the diplomat of the year, the person of the year or whatever. And they named me the diplomat of the year, but they referred to me as the people's ambassador uh, because I did get out to meet ordinary people. And, and it was noticed. It was noticed that I didn't just meet with the president, meet with government officials and leaders, but that I met with ordinary people. And I felt that that was my uh, biggest accomplishment, that I took America to the ordinary person on the ground, the market women, uh, the school kids, uh, the unemployed, uh, the military, and that they knew what it meant to have an American ambassador representing the president of the United States speak to them. How did you leverage these people skills that you developed over time into your role as assistant secretary of state? You know, I always tried uh, as the assistant secretary to make sure that people felt comfortable with me at every level. And that meant even heads of state. And so, even now on the African continent, those heads of state, many of them are long serving, they all know me as Linda. 
And I was, you know, I was at a couple of years ago after I left the State Department. In fact, I went to a meeting of the United Nations and I was standing in the main hotel that all of the heads of state stay in waiting to go up to see one in my new role as the head of the Africa practice in at Albright Stonebridge Group. And as I'm standing there, the president of, of Kenya passed by and he was going by really fast and he stops and says, oh, Linda, how are you? When are you gonna come and see me? And then he quickly passes by and then the president of Mozambique passes by and he says, hey, Linda. And I waved, we didn't talk. And uh, a third president uh, passed by. And then one of, the, one of the guards said, who is that lady? All of these heads of state are talking to her. And I heard the other guys, I don't know who she is. And so he came over and said, who are you? And I said, I'm nobody, I'm just Linda. And I loved it. And it's important that people get to like you before they, before you have to work with them. So if people like you, or they res- at least respect you, it makes working with them uh, a lot easier. And so I spent a lot of time on being, making sure that I was a diplomat and that people respected me and they liked me and they could accept a tough message from me because they liked me as a person. And I'm sure you, you leveraged that mindset into your work here, like domestically, as you're working in Republican administrations and in Democratic administrations, can you speak to that experience at all? Like uh, working for presidents that have very different approaches to the job. You know, I one of the things that we uh, foreign service officers and civil services as well in the State Department prided ourselves in is that we were nonpartisan. Uh, we worked for every administration. We served every administration uh, elected by uh, the people of the United States. And one of my biggest disappointments with uh, this administration was the fact that they did not accept the fact that we were nonpartisan. Uh, The president promoted a, a narrative that there was this deep state that was working against him. And uh, I never witnessed that deep state. I only witnessed professionals who were working to do their best to serve the president. And you don't always agree uh, with your president. I can't say I agreed 100% with policy decisions that were made by any of the administrations. But I also understood that my role was to to try to, to provide alternative information to the administration so that they could, could consider that information as they made their decisions. But once the decision is made, we salute and uh, we, uh, we move on. And I tell young audiences now that if you are in a position where you're not able to salute and carry out the policy, then that is when it's time for you to quit. You cannot work within an administration and undermine that uh, administration's uh, uh, policies. That's been hard, uh, clearly, for uh, the current administration, uh, because this administration has uh, shown, I believe, a disdain for uh, professional opinions and certainly for anyone who would disagree with uh, the uh, uh, policies that were being promoted by the administration. 
Absolutely. And I definitely want to talk more about this politicization later in the podcast, but um, you mentioned it in your previous answer. Do you want to talk about your role now at Albright Stonebridge Group um, in D.C. now and like what you're up to these days? Yeah, that's interesting. So this is this job is something I never expected that I would be doing. I am an Africanist. I'm part time academic. I'm a diplomat. I have never seen myself in a role as uh, being in the private sector. So I was uh, first hired by Albright Stonebridge to provide advice and guidance to companies doing business in Africa, uh, giving them the lay of the land, discussing the political environments that they would find themselves investing in, who are the main personalities they need to know, who are the personalities they need to avoid. So that's how the job started. I eventually, after a year, uh, became head of the Africa practice, managing all of uh, the engagements with the private sector over the entire continent of, of, of Africa. And uh, it's been fun. It's been different. But you use the same skills. You use the same diplomatic skills to do commercial diplomacy as you use to do foreign policy and political diplomacy. Yeah, it seems like such an, uh, an amazing and interesting role to step into, especially after uh, your time at the State Department. Now we can kind of get into the politicization of the, <laughs> of the State Department. You have been an outspoken critic of the administration and how they are handling the State Department as a whole. And just this summer, you spoke out about Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Can you talk about maybe some of the implications of the actions of the administration that you're seeing play out today with the State Department? Well, let me just start by saying that initially when I left the State Department in 2017, I was very, very uncomfortable uh, criticizing uh, the uh, administration and criticizing uh, the State Department. Uh, I felt they didn't need a former foreign service officer outside the system criticizing what they were trying to do in terms of policy. Eventually, that position evolved uh, because I began to see some things that made me uncomfortable in terms of how the, particularly the Pompeo administration of the State Department was being politicized and how the Trump administration broadly politicized the work that our colleagues in the State Department were doing. And I think the Ukraine situation was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for many of us who left the State Department, um, because we know that our ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch, was doing her job. And for her to not only uh, be fired, but be threatened, uh, was beyond the pale for any of us. And so I started to speak out much, much more after uh, that situation occurred. Secretary Pompeo's decision to give a partisan political speech while he was on an official visit to, to Israel, I think really crossed a very, very serious line that separates the State Department as a nonpartisan bureaucracy supporting the administration in the carrying, carrying out of its policy and the State Department supporting the political 
agenda of the administration and of the secretary. Pompeo crossed that line. And uh, I think it does not bode well for the future of our State Department because I think unless we pull that back, every administration will use uh, the State Department's platform uh, to carry out uh, its political agenda. And we can't, I don't think we can operate in a situation like that. So it's my hope that uh, we, in a next administration, both uh, Congress and the administration will look at ways to put procedures and laws in place that will not allow this to happen again in the future. In your experience, you you obviously have worked with a lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats. You've seen the public's reactions to decisions that the State Department makes. Are you surprised that more like Republicans aren't clamoring to to say something about um, how the State Department is running right now, especially Republicans and moderates that are particularly involved with foreign affairs? Um, is that like a surprise to you that more aren't calling out some of the things that the State Department is doing? Well, you know, there are a large number of Republicans uh, who have expressed concerns about how uh, this administration administration is approaching all of its policy, the, the uh, politicization of the State Department, but also how this administration has uh, worked to divide uh, the public on uh, a large number of issues. Uh, I was just, uh, I just saw a, a group of Republicans coming together to express their concerns in a letter that was signed. There are a group of Republicans who call themselves the McCain Republicans, who have also signed on to uh, uh, support uh, Biden um, because of concerns expressed by, uh, by Trump. And then, of course, there was the large group at the beginning of the administration in fact, before Trump won the first election, who uh, signed on to a never, never Trumper. Uh, one of the problems with that is that many of these people are the most qualified and most capable Republicans, and uh, they were not able to participate in helping this administration carry out its mandate from, uh, from the people. And the mandate, when I talk about the mandate from the people, it's not just the people who voted for President Trump. His mandate comes from all of the people of the United States. The president represents the entire country. Once he's elected, it's not just the people who vote for him. It's every, everybody. And uh, unfortunately, we have not seen, uh, seen that happen. I think what has surprised me the most is the extent to which Republicans in Congress have lined up behind the president. Even many of those who criticized the president early on, uh, individuals who we have worked with in the past who've shown uh, their commitment to diplomacy and commitment to, uh, to the State Department, that they have allowed this to happen is a huge, huge surprise to, uh, to many of us, that the, the party, in the sense of those who are on the Hill, have not drawn a line in the sand on some of the decisions that the the administration has taken. And you you started to speak about it in your previous answer, but what are some things that are going to need to happen in a new administration for uh, things to return to some kind of normalcy in the State Department? 
Well, first and foremost, I think that if there's a new administration, and I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be, that the new president will appoint a secretary of state early on, that, that uh, he, President Biden, will make that one of his first priorities, and that that secretary will make as his or her first priority addressing the State Department to just start to deal with the morale issues, but also start to put in place a group of advisors that show respect for the career foreign service and may come from the career foreign service. Right now, there of 28 assistant secretary positions in the State Department, only one is career. Undersecretaries, which are, is the next level up, no career people. Well, I take that back. There's one, the undersecretary for political affairs is, is career. And so right now with him, there are only two career people in the senior ranks of, of the State Department. So that sense of really chilling a message to people who have committed their lives to uh, uh, supporting the policies of, of our government. And when I say committed their lives, we know foreign service officers who've died in the line of, of duty. I lost 10 friends in the bombing of uh, our embassy in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, I'd left just a year earlier than the bombing. And we lost uh, more than 200 of our local staff. Uh, the killing of uh, in, in Benghazi of Ambassador Stevens was devastating uh, to all of us. And that was politicized by, by this administration, unfortunately. So we do have people who give their lives, like our military, in the line of duty. And I would like to see Foreign Service officers thank for their duty and thank for their commitment to, to our country. We uh, fly the flag like our military, and many of us are the first lines of defense uh, in a military uh, situation. I feel like a lot of people do not realize that diplomacy also has its fatalities and its costs in human life. With the current administration and all of its current filled and unfilled roles, I know that there are critiques out there and there's talk out there of how in 2017 a lot of women and a lot of people of color were pushed out of the administration in particular in the state department can you speak at all to the importance of how like diversity in those roles is especially important in times like these you know it is absolutely important to our country that the face of our country looks like america that is such a strength and it's such a strong message when we are overseas that people who came to the United States as immigrants became US citizens, joined the Foreign Service and are representing the United States overseas. That African-Americans who have experienced centuries of, of racism, starting with slavery, that we can represent our government overseas at the uh, highest level, that, that women who in many countries are not given uh, rights, they can represent our, our country overseas, that our LGBTI community who have not been respected in many countries, that they too can represent our country overseas. So it's an important part of our message 
that we are a diverse uh, uh, country and a diverse society. So the fact that so many of the senior women and senior African-Americans and other ethnic groups uh, left the State Department, many forced out, others left because it was made intolerable for them, sends, I think, a chilling message through uh, the department. And if you're a young African-American woman at the University of Wisconsin right now, uh, you're going to think twice about whether you want to join uh, the State Department and work for an institution that where you see no one or very few people who look like you at the, at the top. Uh, what I will say to the students who are listening to this is uh, you have to continue to be interested in serving your country if it's not as a diplomat in some other public service way. Uh, because if you don't pursue these careers that you want to pursue, then the other side wins. Uh, the people who don't respect diversity, they will win. So you can't allow them to win. And uh, I think you'll find once you're in that you are the change that uh, you want and that you can make uh, change happen. Excellent advice for students. Would you, would you call that duty? I think it's duty. I, I think public service is, is a duty that every single American has. Uh, my generation uh, recalls very funly uh, the call to duty that President Kennedy made when he became president and encouraged the, the Peace Corps and, and encouraged uh, public service. And so it's embedded in, in my generation. And uh, I think we saw a, somewhat a lessening of, of that uh, commitment over the past few years, but I would like to encourage people to rethink uh, the commitment. Uh, I think the Peace Corps, uh, for example, is an amazing opportunity to go out and be kind of the first ambassadors for, for the United States because Peace Corps volunteers go into countries and into rural areas where people may never have seen an American. And uh, a Peace Corps volunteer may be the first American that they come across. But the experience that you gain being a Peace Corps volunteer is the experience you will need to be an effective diplomat. And so while all of you are, are thinking about things to do, I encourage you to think about Peace Corps, uh, but also remember that uh, the Foreign Service, the Diplomatic Service, Public Service, are areas that you should uh, consider as you think about what you want to do to make a difference in, in the world. Kind of turning now from looking at the current administration, I, I know you've been a Joe Biden supporter for a number of months now. Can you from share- From the beginning. From the beginning even. Can you share <laughs> with, us, with us why Joe Biden was your pick from the beginning, especially? You know, I, I knew the vice president from uh, the time that I served as the assistant secretary for Africa and worked uh, very closely uh, with him. But also I knew that he was the only uh, Democrat of, of those who raised their hands. Uh, in my view, he was the only Democrat who could defeat uh, President Trump. I, I think that every other candidate, I'm not questioning their qualifications, but this was not about 
qualifications. It was about who could be the most effective to get the votes needed uh, for the Democratic Party to, to win. And I, I thought from day one that that person was, um, uh, was Vice President Biden, and I still feel that way. What was your initial reaction um, to his pick of Kamala Harris as uh, the first woman uh, vice president? Yeah, I was enthusiastic. You know, first and foremost, you have four, what's it, four? Four women of color being considered for the VP spot. So that was a huge, huge uh, message. And uh, Kamala had been very effective on the... uh, uh, on the campaign trail. And I think she complimented uh, the vice president. And I think that uh, he has a winning team. So I was very, very enthusiastic about, uh, about her selection. What are you making of the polls right now? You know, I, <laughs> that's a great question. I, I heard the polls uh, in 2016. And in everybody's minds, uh, and according to the polls, uh, Hillary Clinton was going to be the first woman president of of the United States. And we saw what happened. So I think the polls are a guide. Uh, they They give us something to think about. And they certainly give the politicians and the candidates something to think about. So right now, the polls are saying that Joe Biden's uh, support among uh, the Latinx population is not as strong as Hillary Clinton's. So uh, that means that the vice president has to get out there and make sure that his message is being effectively delivered uh, to that community. So the polls are important from that standpoint, but I will not depend on the polls to tell me who's gonna be the next uh, president of, of the United States. Uh, did that once. And like every person who burns their finger the first time, you're not going to stick your fingers in the fire the second time. So I, I will be waiting for, uh, for the results. Although I don't think we're going to have results on November 4, uh, with all of the uh, uh, voting by mail and what I expect to be uh, some contentiousness around the election. Uh, we probably won't know for uh, uh, for a few days, uh, but I'm I'm hopeful that um, the results will show uh, Vice President Biden as the victor. If the numbers show that he has lost this election, I am confident that our Supreme Court and that the institutions of this country will stand up and ensure that he steps down. We're not a dictatorship. And while our president's tendencies are authoritarian, ultimately our country is not authoritarian. I do worry about violence. This is like, I, I, was, I got a request today to do a virtual monitoring of the Ghanaian elections that are going to happen in December of this year. And uh, I monitored the Nigerian elections in, in 2015 and the last Ghanaian elections. You know, I hope people are monitoring our elections because the trends leading up to our election are very, very similar to trends that we have seen in countries that are less democratic. 
and that worries me. I heard today that one of the president's advisors uh, was telling people on Twitter to buy ammunition. Uh, he should be arrested. Uh, he's fomenting violence. Uh, this is not what we expect in our country. We don't expect militia to be out voting. I hear people say, I don't want to vote on election day because I'm afraid of violence, so I'm gonna vote early. Uh, what if people show up at the polling booths with, with guns? I, I'm afraid. This is not our country. So I feel a tremendous amount of anger and concern and disgust by what is happening right now but ultimately, I have to be optimistic that we uh, shall get uh, past this. Our country is stronger than that. Our values are stronger. And while we've seen our values tested, we are a resilient country. And to say that as an African-American is, uh, is a huge, huge statement. And the impact of racism and violence against African-Americans, every African-American feels that in some way or another. But yet African-Americans still believe in this country and we're all go going to get out to vote, African-Americans and everyone else to ensure that our voices are, are heard. And I think if in a free and fair election, if President Trump wins, we'll cry about it and we'll be upset about it, but it will be accepted as bad as it might be. And in a free and fair election, if Vice President Biden wins, President Trump has no choice but to accept the voice of the American people. And this is interesting for me because I've been so apolitical. Yeah, I spent 35 years in the Foreign Service and it was 35 years of being apolitical. I never talked about who I voted for. I um, never talked about political party. I didn't declare myself, although I was a registered Democrat from uh, the first time I registered to vote. I never declared myself publicly as a, as a Democrat. And many people, when President Bush uh, nominated me to be the ambassador to Liberia, uh, most people suspected, wow, if she got that job, then she has to be uh, a Republican. And I didn't disavow them of that idea. I retired from the Foreign Service on uh, September 28, 2017. And on that day, I became publicly a Democrat. That speaks so incredibly to the moment now and the gravity of the situation. And you, uh, you started talking about it in that answer, but I, I, if it's okay, I would love to talk about the renewed civil rights movement that has uh, been happening in the United States now. Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote Between the World and Me, has written that this movement feels different than past movements for racial equality in the United States. And I wanted to get your take on that as someone that is very involved in, in everything that has to do with the United States. You know, it does feel different. And part of the reason it feels different is because it's playing out uh, on, uh, it's, it's, it's playing out on all of these new uh, virtual platforms that we have. Uh, and messages are getting through to people at every level. Uh, we have people demonstrating all over the world uh, over killings that are happening in the, in the United States. It kind of reminds me of the period 
when there were demonstrations against South Africa uh, over apartheid, when the whole world came together. And what we're seeing is the whole world is looking at the United States and they're looking somewhat uh, shocked at how bad things are. And there's a clear understanding of the impact that racism, that slavery, racism and violence has had on the African-American uh, community. Uh, so I, it does feel different. Uh, I still think we have a lot of work to do. Uh, it's depressing when you come from where I came from uh, to see that we're still dealing with this kind of uh, violence against uh, African-Americans. And it's very um, uh, deliberate. I just cannot imagine after the George Floyd killing that we would see almost a drumbeat of killings of black men after that. And what I found so extraordinary is every time it happened, the person would have to be vilified. Well, they had some legal problems. Uh, my son, who is an accomplished attorney, had no end of problems with the police. If today he was killed in a violent act by the police, they would pull up his file to say, well, he had issues with the police. Uh, he would be completely vilified. And the point I've made is no matter what actions these people took, and we're not even hearing this anymore, if George Floyd passed a fake $10 bill or a $20 bill, is that a death sentence? And that's the question we have to keep asking. These are not death sentences. You don't kill a person. And I described, I passed a fake $20 bill once. I didn't know it was fake. I changed a $100 bill. I'm still kind of a cash person. And I had a $100 bill and I went into a 7-Eleven, bought something, and I got three $20 bills back and then some tens and fives. And I went to uh, pay for, I actually went to get my hair done and I paid the, the beautician and I gave her one of these $20 bills. And I was walking out the door when she came running to me to say, excuse me, ma'am, this is fake. And I said, really? And she showed it to me and she showed me a real one. And I saw that it was a fake $20 bill. Um, and she gave it back to me. I actually went immediately to the police to say, I've been given this fake money and here's where I got it from. And they said, thank you, ma'am, for bringing it. It was three fake $20 bills. They took $60 from me. I signed that they got $60 and I never got my $60 back. I didn't get killed. And it wasn't a death sentence for me and it should not have been a death sentence for, uh, for George Floyd. Uh, and that's the issue that we have in hand that the police are trigger happy when it comes to young black men. Now I'm a very strong supporter of the police but the police need to understand that we pay taxes too and they have to be amenable to protecting us as well. And uh, that's not the case. And the thing that happened in Kenosha uh, was, uh, was shocking to me. I, I'll, I'll share something with you guys that the first time in my life that I was ever called the N-word was in Madison, Wisconsin. And it, it, it shocked me. I was walking on State Street and uh, 
It was the night after a football game. I was coming from the library. It was right around State and Lake. And I was about to cross the street and somebody passed by in a car and shot me in the face with a water gun and called me the N-word. And it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating because I had never been called the N-word to my face in Louisiana. And I never expected it to happen in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, so, you know, racism is, is built into the core of our country. And uh, it's going, going to take every single voice to fight it. And African-Americans can't do it by themselves. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It, you know, we, we've started reckoning with this in Madison, especially and with the university, and it has been such a hot topic here. And that speaks to it even more. It speaks volumes. So thank you so much for sharing that story. And I, I want to be cognizant of your time today. So I just have one more question and I kind of want to end on a, on a hopeful note. Do you have any words of wisdom for our graduates that are going to be graduating this spring or just words of wisdom for students in general who are looking to pursue um, a life like yours and public service? You know, I, I, I think I may have said this earlier, how much I love being in the Foreign Service and representing the, the uh, United States overseas and building this network of friends and countries far and, 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 and near and being known by people all over the world and learning about people all over the world. Uh, it's been extraordinary. And I think any uh, student who is even remotely thinking about uh, a career working in, in uh, foreign affairs, uh, that you will not regret that decision. And it's not just the State Department. Uh, clearly, there are positions working overseas in the private sector. Uh, I know that uh, just, you know, companies like Google and Facebook, foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation and the Gates Foundation, all have people who are working uh, overseas. The United Nations working in the multilateral world. Uh, there are opportunities there as, as well. And I talked earlier about Peace Corps. I love the Peace Corps. If I have any regret in life, it's that I didn't go, uh, go to Peace Corps. And uh, I'm reminded every day by my friends at Peace Corps that I still can uh, because Peace Corps will take you at every age. So I can't say I'm thinking about it, but if an opportunity presented itself, I would jump on it. So. Uh, for me, there's no better uh, place to land than a job that will take you uh, to far-flung places around the world uh, to give you an opportunity to get to know people who are different from you and to learn about those people and take the best of America uh, to those people. Amazing advice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ambassador. It has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've loved it, and I still love Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and still have a special place in my heart for, uh, for Madison. And I wish all of the students the best of luck as they decide how they will decide to make a difference in the world. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.